Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this show is The Boston College Tapes, The IRA and Who Tells Our Past. This episode is very different from my normal shows as it focuses on events ranging from 1972 to just recent days. Two weeks ago, Ireland made international headlines when Gerry Adams, the president of Sinn Féin, one of the largest political parties in Ireland, was arrested for questioning in relation to a 42-year-old murder. This brought into focus a pivotal year of Irish history, 1972, when nearly 500 people were killed and what became known as the Troubles spiralled out of control amid some of the worst massacres and murders in recent Irish history. Our understanding of these events has changed recently after secret recordings made in Boston College with prominent members of the IRA have been released. However, when Adams was arrested, it emerged the investigating officers had used material from this historical archive in the US to question him. This has led to an explosive collision between history and politics since his release. The fallout has been immense for history. In the first part of the show, I look at some fascinating and often dark history of Ireland in the early 1970s and how it came to be that some of those directly involved broke their silence and gave what are incredible historical testimonies to a Boston university. In the second part, I look at the ethical dilemmas these testimonies present. For example, do historians have the right to record evidence of what were serious crimes, when they can seem at odds with victims who are still seeking justice? I also look at the very important question of who has the right to record history, which has become an increasingly important issue since the arrest of Gerry Adams. This show is not about providing decisive answers. Ultimately, you will have to make up your own mind on these questions. Before getting into the show, I just want to give a brief overview into the history of Northern Ireland where most of this show will focus on. In 1922, Ireland was partitioned after its War of Independence. 26 counties today referred to as the South or the Republic of Ireland became an independent state while the six counties in the northeast remain part of the United Kingdom as an entity called 
Northern Ireland, often referred to simply as the North. This was a highly sectarian state where Catholics were heavily discriminated against. In 1969, huge social upheaval erupted when demands for equality for Catholics came to the fore. This saw numerous forms of protest, including armed struggle led by the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, and its political wing, Sinn Féin. The IRA split in 1970 into two groups, the Officials and the Provisionals, the latter becoming the major force and the organisation most people think of when the IRA is mentioned. Sinn Féin also split around this time between Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party and Provisional Sinn Féin. The latter, with close connections to the Provisional IRA, became the more dynamic of the two parties, developing into the organisation we know as Sinn Féin today. Finally, before I start, this episode deals with some very dark and very controversial topics. I understand some of you will disagree with my analysis, but let me know what you think. You can find me on Twitter at Irish History or Irish History Podcast on Facebook. If there was one year that transformed the situation in Northern Ireland, it was 1972. It witnessed a series of events which created a maelstrom from which society in Ireland is still emerging. While there had been riots and a very serious massacre at Ballymurphy in Belfast in 1971, it was nevertheless the events of 1972 which saw Ireland cross a Rubicon of sorts into decades of violence known as the Troubles. That turbulent year was scarcely four weeks old when Ireland, in many ways, had already passed a point of no return. On January 30th, 1972, at a Derry demonstration of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, the British Army shot and killed 13 people, while a 14th, John Johnston, later died of his wounds over four months later. It was a perverse outcome given these demonstrators, inspired by the civil rights movement in the US, were demanding equal rights for Catholics who were heavily discriminated against in Northern Ireland. While tensions had been mounting in the North since 1969, this massacre of marchers, known as Bloody Sunday, transformed the situation. As reports from Derry reverberated around Ireland, large numbers of people were politicised. A few days later, the British Embassy in Dublin was burned to the ground by a crowd numbering in the tens of thousands. As the situation quickly polarised, the Republican paramilitaries, and in particular the Provisional IRA, whose commitment to militant and unwavering armed struggle against the British presence in Ireland were the immediate beneficiaries. Hundreds of young people flocked to their ranks, attracted by their intransigent opposition to British rule. Hundreds would die in the following months as rioting and gun battles between the British Army and the IRA were frequent, particularly in Belfast. After attempts at negotiation failed, Friday, July 21st, 1972, saw one of the worst provisional IRA acts of violence when 22 bombs were set off in Belfast city centre in an effort to illustrate their power to the British government. Nine people were killed and many involved could quickly see the attack would backfire. This event underscored the increasing volatility of the situation where risks were being taken on both sides as the situation escalated. Brendan Hughes, the one-time IRA operations officer and later commanding officer in Belfast, a position known as OC, who oversaw what became known as Bloody Friday, later said, I wouldn't do it again. The risks were far too high, even if there wasn't any collusion or deceit on the part of the British. I don't believe they were capable of handling so many bombs at one time. 
Later that same month of July 1972, the British Army launched what was a disastrous counter-insurgency military offensive called Operation Motorman against Republican communities in Belfast, Derry and other towns across the north. Ostensibly to remove barricades erected in these communities, this saw over 20,000 troops brought onto the streets, supported by tanks. This, in effect, transformed the streets of Northern Ireland into a full-blown war zone. What little hopes there were for peace were evaporating fast. By December 1972, as the death toll in the north approached 500, a massive toll given the overall number killed in the 30 years of conflict only reached 3,500. One of the most shocking and lasting events of this horrific year took place. As Operation Motorman increasingly turned Republican communities into a war zone, suspicions around what were known as touts increased. Touts, or informers, were individuals who passed information to the British Army on members of the IRA. They were treated in the harshest possible terms, with execution being common. However, in late 1972, those accused of informing were treated in a new and even harsher fashion. The following events will form the basis of much of the rest of the podcast, so it's necessary to go into detail. Where the events are contested, I will give as much information as there is available. Some people may find the following disturbing. In December 1972, the IRA raided the home of Mrs Jean McConville, a recent widow and mother of ten children. Living in the Republican heartland of West Belfast, she was suspected by some of being an informer, or a tout as it was called. The following events are widely disputed. According to Brendan Hughes, the IRA commander, Jean McConville was an informer, as a unit under his command found a transmitter in an IRA raid on her home. She was allegedly warned to stop. A few weeks later, they returned and supposedly again found evidence that Mrs McConville was informing. On this occasion, she was abducted and never seen again alive. The IRA shot Jean McConville in the head before burying her in secret on a beach in County Loud in the Republic of Ireland. She became one of several people treated in this fashion who were collectively referred to as the disappeared. In the days after Jean McConville's disappearance, her children, who had seen some of those involved, were targeted to ensure their silence. This saw her 11-year-old son severely intimidated by the IRA. While the murder of a widow and a mother of 10 provoked outrage, the disappearance of her body would confound and shock people in equal measure in the years to come. It was this aspect that even divided the IRA at the time. Brendan Hughes, the IRA commander quoted earlier, later revealed a debate he claimed happened in the IRA in Belfast. He recalled the following events around the year 2001. I knew she was going to be executed. I didn't know she was going to be buried, or disappeared as they call it now. I know one particular person on the Belfast Brigade at the time, Ivor Bell, argued for her to be shot. Yes, but to be left on the street, because to take her away and bury her would serve no purpose. People wouldn't know. So looking back on it now, what happened to her was wrong. I mean, she deserved to be executed, I believe, because she was an informer and she put other people's lives at risk. Before continuing, it is important to note that in recent years, the police ombudswoman of Northern Ireland, Nulo Lone, found no evidence Jean McConville had been working for the security services her family has also refuted these claims. Ivor Bell, to my knowledge, 
has never made any public statements on these claims. The killing of Jean McConville came at the close of what was one of the worst years of conflict, but, sadly, it was by no means the last. These events, however, were pivotal for what occurred in the following decades. Indeed, it would be another 26 years before some form of stability would return to Ireland when a peace settlement, the Belfast Agreement, was signed. This became known as the Good Friday Agreement as it was signed on Good Friday 1998. This saw major armed campaigns on all sides wound down. Nevertheless, the events of 1972 were not forgotten. As part of this process, the Provisional IRA in 1999 acknowledged for the first time it was responsible for Mrs McConville's death. However, they were unable to give the exact location of her body and it was only in 2003 she was discovered by accident when a storm blew away a section of a beach where she was buried. In the years after 1998, the peace process ebbed and flowed and armed conflict in Ireland more or less came to an end. While smaller groupings committed to armed struggle remain, the Provisional IRA has been disbanded and has handed over its weaponry. In this climate, historians increasingly have been able to examine the conflict in a new light. Stories once deemed untouchable can now be revisited. Histories written during the conflict were hamstrung by the fact that many key players involved could not, or more importantly would not, talk about their experiences. In the early 2000s, a climate evolved though, where some of these key figures began to talk about their views of what had happened. However, telling these stories could be highly risky and proved very complex. The first issue was that there was not just one narrative of the events that had happened in Ireland during what was known as the Troubles. While there were very clear differences between the Republican movement's analysis and that of the British government, there was also stark divisions between many of those involved in the IRA and how they had saw events they had been involved in together. This was illustrated clearly in 2005 when a former IRA prisoner and the PRO during the famous 1981 hunger strike, Richard O'Raw, published a controversial account of the hunger strike which deviated very far from the analysis forwarded by Sinn Féin. If O'Raw's book did anything, it underscored clearly that there was not just one single interpretation of past events, but indeed multiple and potentially contradictory versions. These contradictory viewpoints also generally reflected political divisions on the ground in the North. For historians hoping to examine the events between the 1960s and 1990s in Ireland, they would need to navigate a fraught world where bitter divisions between once former comrades meant that some people's views could easily be dismissed by others out of hand, perhaps more due to their political affiliations rather than the veracity of their memories. Acknowledging such divisions would be key to carrying out successful historical research. Such problems for historians were compounded by the fact that many of the seminal events in how the conflict was understood, for example, Jim McConville's murder, were still under investigation, which meant that people involved would be slow to come forward. Ireland had also changed dramatically. Most people found such killings not only reprehensible, but also incomprehensible. Huge social stigma would arise from admitting any involvement. It was in this climate then that what seemed to be a very exciting project 
was initiated by Paul Bew, a prominent figure in the North and a history professor in Queen's University, Belfast. He, along with Robert O'Neill, the director of the Burns Library of Boston College in the United States, and Ed Maloney, a journalist, devised the idea of a project where those formerly involved in the conflict in Northern Ireland would give testimonies about their activity. These accounts would be given in secret and lodged in the archives of Boston College and only, crucially, published after the deaths of the interviewees. Officially entitled The Boston College Belfast Project, this gave the potential of having numerous viewpoints of these very contested events in Irish history. Another key figure in this process was Anthony McIntyre, who was to conduct the interviews of people from the Republican side. McIntyre was a former prominent member of the IRA in Belfast in the 1970s. He had spent 17 years in prison for murder, four of which were on the famous blanket protest where IRA members refused to wear prison clothing or engage with the prison system in any way, shape or form. After his release, he completed a PhD in history and although he was no longer involved in the IRA or Sinn Féin, he was highly respected amongst many of his former comrades. So it was in the early 2000s that Anthony McIntyre began to preserve this key part of the history of Ireland by interviewing former members of the IRA. At the time, it no doubt seemed that these interviews would not be used probably for decades given the participants were in their 50s and 60s. The only confirmed interviews were the former IRA commander quoted above, Brendan Hughes, and the prominent IRA member, Dolores Price, who, in 2010, publicly admitted she had given an interview, as well as the loyalist, David Irvine. It was widely reported that Ivor Bell, another key Belfast Republican, had also given an interview. However, this is something he denied. It was clear that these interviews would be key sources for historians in the future, These individuals had been central figures and now they could talk for the first time, free from fear of retribution or legal repercussion. These interviews clearly had the potential to reshape our understanding of the recent past in Ireland. Indeed, when the first snippets of the contents emerged in 2010, after two interviewees had died, they did not fail to impress. Ed Maloney, the director of the Boston College Belfast Project, published a book called Voices from the Grave, Two Men's War in Ireland. This book contained the testimony of Brendan Hughes, who had died in 2008, side by side with the testimony of the prominent loyalist David Irvine, who had died in 2007. It was Hughes' testimony, however, that revealed the potential of a project like that being carried out at Boston. Hughes, prior to the interview, had never even admitted being in the IRA, but when talking to Anthony McIntyre, he had given the most extraordinary and candid interview about his life and had also made the most serious allegations, the implications of which were far-reaching. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When Brendan Hughes was interviewed, not only did he give a great insight into life in Belfast in the early 1970s and his motivations for getting involved in the IRA, but he also revealed key details into events such as Bloody Friday, how he interpreted them. However, when he recollected on the Jean McConville case, the world of history collided full force with the world of modern politics in Ireland. Brendan Hughes directly accused Gerry Adams, the current president of Sinn Féin and member of the Irish Parliament, of ordering Jean McConville's death. Hughes said, There was only one man who gave the order for that woman to be executed. That man is now the head of Sinn Féin. He went to this family's house, here he is referring to the McConville's house, and promised an investigation into the woman's disappearance. That man is the man who gave the order for that woman to be executed. Now tell me the morality in that. I wasn't involved in the execution of the woman, but she was an informer, and I warned her the first time. I took a device out of her house and warned her. She would a load of kids. She carried on doing it. I didn't give the order to execute the woman. He did. Before continuing, it's crucial to note that Jerry Adams has always vehemently denied that he was involved in any way, shape or form in the murder of Jean McConville. As mentioned earlier, Nula alone found absolutely no evidence that Jean McConville was an informer after an investigation on the issue when she was the police ombudsperson in Northern Ireland. Hughes' testimony had huge consequences and soon the Boston College Belfast Project and its interviewees were placed under serious scrutiny in time, the entire field of contemporary Irish history would be dragged into the storm which blew up around it. As historians eagerly awaited what further publications from Boston College would reveal about the development of the conflict in the North, security services also began to take a keen interest. It was clear from Hughes's interview that for the first time, people who had never before revealed being in the IRA had now not only admitted their membership, but had discussed at length their role and also the roles of others. They were now keen to see what else lay in this archive. Unsurprisingly, therefore, not long after Ed Maloney published his book Voices from the Grave, Two Men's War in Ireland, the PSNI, the Police Service of Northern Ireland, launched legal proceedings to force Boston College to hand over the remaining tapes. The success or otherwise of the PSNI's court case would have huge consequences for the future of Irish history.
the basis on which the interviews had been carried out was that the testimonies would be held in private until the deaths of the interviewees unless otherwise stipulated. If the PSNI got hold of the interviews not only would it damage the project but similar projects in the future would find it very difficult to get people willing to talk about illegal activity in a similar fashion. Anthony McIntyre and Ed Maloney, the two individuals most associated with the project, both claim they had received guarantees from Boston College that the interviews were safe from any legal proceedings in the archives of the university. However, quickly it became clear that this guarantee was by no means solid and the college were reticent about protecting them legally. Indeed, McIntyre and Maloney claimed the college only took legal action to stop the tapes being taken by the PSNI at their urging. It appears whatever guarantees Boston College had made were given under, at best, misleading pretenses. This was disastrous and indeed potentially life-threatening to some of those who had given interviews. Anthony McIntyre and Ed Maloney quickly distanced themselves from the entire project and took their own case to stop the PSNI getting the recordings being held in Boston College as they felt the university were lacklustre in their attempts to do so. After much legal wrangling, the PSNI had their request limited firstly to the tape of a woman called Dolores Price. A former member of the IRA in Belfast, Price had in 2010 made a very similar allegation to Hughes in the media saying Jerry Adams had instructed her to drive Mrs McConville to where she was buried. The PSNI got her tape and later several other segments of this invaluable history source, including a tape by an interviewee only known as Zed. Soon, the PSNI began conducting an investigation into Jean McConville's murder, based on these interviews. In 2013, Dolores Price died before any prosecution could be taken against her, but in 2014, Ivor Bell was arrested. Bell was one of the most senior Republicans in Belfast up until 1986 when he was allegedly court-martialed by the IRA after which he had no active involvement in politics. The PSNI alleged that he was interviewee Z. Bell vehemently denied that this was the case but was still subsequently charged with aiding and abetting in Jean McConville's murder. Through the entire debacle, speculation around Jerry Adams himself was building given his name was repeatedly associated with the case. In light of this, Jerry Adams himself contacted the PSNI offering to help with their inquiries and a date was set up for interview. However, when he turned up on Wednesday, April 30th, 2014, the Sinn Féin president was unexpectedly arrested and held for four days before being released without charge. This had huge consequences in Ireland, not only politically, but also in terms of historical research. Within hours of Adams's release on May 4th, he revealed that the tapes seized from the historical archive in Boston had been the basis of his questioning. He specifically mentioned that they had used interviews by Dolores Price, Brendan Hughes and the individual Zed. The Boston College project was now dragged centre stage in a bitter political row. Jerry Adams denied the allegations, saying that the testimonies were the ramblings of embittered political opponents. Soon several prominent individuals close to Sinn Féin began to attack the project, seeking to discredit it. Former Sinn Féin Director of Publicity, Danny Morrison, disgracefully took to Twitter to brand Anthony McIntyre with the name McIntout, while Walls Cross West Belfast, a Republican stronghold, were daubed with the slogan, Boston College Touts.
the Boston College Belfast project was effectively dead. Its interviewers and interviewees were, were unfairly being branded as informers, perhaps the worst possible thing that could happen to a Republican. History and politics had clashed and there was only one winner. Once the PSNI seized the tapes, this blurred the lines between justice and historical research. Given the tapes may have clues about what exactly happened to Jean McConville, many have argued that the PSNI were right to take them and it was a completely legitimate course of action. This is something I strongly disagree with. Historians study history and the police investigate crimes. Their research, methods and interviews have a very different basis, aims and methodologies. So, just like historians cannot use contemporary police files to write history, likewise the police should not even attempt to use the research of historians to solve crimes. Why exactly they even sought the archive in the first place is highly questionable, given none of it appears to be admissible in court. The impact on our understanding of the Troubles, however, will be devastating. Understanding the conflict in the North is crucial to trying to ensure it does not happen again. To do this, we need to hear the voices of lots of people, some of whom have committed pretty horrendous acts of violence. This may involve interviewing people on the periphery of politics today who were to the fore in the 1970s. Regardless of what we think of their current views, this does not change their past actions, experiences and their importance. They will only talk, however, if they can be interviewed free from fear of prosecution or retribution. Therefore, justice and historical research need to be clearly separated. We will not understand the conflict if we just listen to the voices that sound nicest or tell us what we want to hear. Indeed, this was why the Boston College Belfast project was so exciting. For the first time, it was possible for people increasingly on the margins of Irish society in the 21st century, but who had central roles in the 1970s, to have their experiences recorded. Sadly, the Boston College project has turned out to be nothing short of a disaster. The university made promises to those who agreed to give interviews. Promises, it appears, they could not or, according to some, would not keep. Because of this, now our understanding of the 1970s is wedded to political developments. Unless there is an amnesty for all crimes before the Good Friday Agreement, it would be foolish for either individuals or researchers to get involved in a similar project, such as the Boston College Belfast Project. The ramifications of this will be far-reaching, and it may well result in the history of the North, from the Republican side at least, being written by what could be described as the winners, the current leadership of Sinn Féin. Theirs is, however, only one view of the story and, given their involvement in modern-day politics, is likely to be a sanitised one. They view the arrest of Jerry Adams as politically motivated. They have responded by trying to undermine the Boston College Belfast project and the stories recorded there. While Donnie Morrison, the former Director of Publicity mentioned earlier, has branded the Boston Project a touting programme. More worryingly, Jerry Adams inferred that those who gave testimonies are somehow pseudo-Republicans or former Republicans. This is not accurate. For example, only three months before her death in 2013, Dolores Price said in an interview, Republicanism is a part of our DNA, in a reference to her family. It seems to me that she, Hughes and others deviated from Sinn Féin rather than Republicanism, which is not the same thing. 
Adams himself can only be too aware of this and his questioning of their political views is presumably an attempt to undermine their credibility and therefore their views on the history of the conflict. The logical conclusion of this argument is that these people's views cannot be trusted and therefore only individuals who support Sinn Féin remember the past in an unbiased manner. The truth is, no one remembers the past in an unbiased manner and that is the very reason why we need multiple voices. While we may find some of the views of those involved in the conflict in the North disdainful, if we want to have accurate histories, their views must be a key part. The outcome of the Boston College fiasco is that these people's testimonies have now, sadly, been discredited. While Sinn Féin's moves in recent days deserve severe criticism, the entire affair has raised some very important questions for historians and revealed massive flaws in the Boston College Belfast project. There appears to have been little consideration given to the political leanings and suitability of some of those involved, which, given the complexities of northern politics, was naturally going to have massive consequences. Paul Bew, the initiator of the programme, was a long-time opponent of Sinn Féin, first being a member of official Sinn Féin, the Provisional's bitter rivals, and then, as Adams has been quick to point out, he later advised the Loyalist leader David Trimble at the Good Friday negotiations. Ed Maloney, who is appointed director of the project, is also an ardent critic of Sinn Féin. Maloney is not a historian, but a journalist, who it is fair to say has spent much of his life attacking Gerry Adams. Indeed, his book, The Secret History of the IRA, is one of the most critical books of the Sinn Féin leader available. Anthony McIntyre is also a vocal opponent of the Sinn Féin leadership. While the participation of McIntyre was essential, given his background as a historian, researcher and a former member of the IRA, the choice of Ed Maloney as director is more controversial. He has no background in history and his highly partisan nature made him unsuitable as director and opened the project to widespread political criticism. This does not, however, as Sinn Féin would like us to believe, render the interviews useless. It certainly does undermine the process by which Maloney published his book, Voices from the Grave, which included that interview from Brendan Hughes. Indeed, the Boston College Belfast project has raised huge issues of how to publish the contents of interviews where serious allegations are made. Jerry Adams, in a statement on the affair, has said, Everyone has the right to record their history, but not at the expense of the lives of others. This is a very valid point, which must be acknowledged. All opinions and viewpoints should be archived, but the releasing of such information needs to be done carefully. In the only published interviews from Boston College, Brendan Hughes made very serious allegations against a number of people still alive, not only Jerry Adams, but also Ivor Bell, amongst others. Hughes was no longer alive to back up his argument, which is not an ideal situation when the writer of the book, Ed Maloney, was a highly partisan figure, who in recent days has compared Gerry Adams to Augusto Pinochet, the Chilean dictator. Such an analogy is not useful and would be regarded by most as ludicrous. Perhaps a better solution would have been to place a publishing moratorium of 30 years on the archive. I'm not sure about this myself, but what did happen should not be repeated. The Boston College project is now severely discredited and Boston College themselves have huge question marks hanging over them. The fact that Anthony McIntyre and Ed Maloney had to take a legal case themselves to try and stop the interviews being taken by the PSNI indicated a lack of commitment to defending the interviewees. 
To some degree, it does appear the college have very little understanding of events in Ireland, illustrated by their offer at the moment to hand back the interviews to the interviewees if they identify themselves. This indicates a profound misunderstanding of the background of the the Republican interviewees at least. For example, whoever interviewee Z is can never identify themselves as it will presumably lead to immediate charges. Likewise, many others will be fearful. The only course of action, in my opinion now, sad to say, is to destroy the interviews. While it is hard to see how contemporary Irish history can recover from this, it has raised very serious issues about how we study the recent past. In the next two to three decades, most, if not all, of those involved in the pivotal years of the Troubles will be dead. It's sad to say, but it seems likely now that only those deemed to have transitioned to be respectable members of 21st century society will have their voices heard. This is not good for history. That's where I'm going to leave this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and let me know your thoughts at Irish History on Twitter or Irish History Podcast on Facebook. Finally, before I go, don't forget to tune in next time to catch the first instalment of the story of the Norman invasion of Ireland. In the meantime, if you want to get your copy of the Brian Baru audiobook, just go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash Brian Baru. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash Brian Baru. Until next time, Sloan. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.